imagination births creativity. You're listening to the Sydney Opera House Arty Farty Podcast. Read and daydream. In this season, Creative Conversations, we talk to your favourite artists and authors to find out what inspires them. Creativity is the thing that changes the world. This talk was recorded as a live stream conversation. If you keep doing enough bad things, you actually get a really good thing. Just don't be afraid of failing. Up next, Sean Tan. Sean is a writer, an artist, a filmmaker, and he has created lots of incredible pieces of art. He has picture books, short films, illustrations. He's even done some directing, which is a different type of art form in and of itself. He writes lots of storybooks, which I'm sure you are all familiar with, and he illustrates them too, and those have been translated into 25 different languages. He has won lots and lots of awards for everything that he has done. He has even won something called an Academy Award or an Oscar, which is a very big deal. So welcome, Sean. It's very exciting to have you here. We'll learn a little bit more about you, your creative process, and what it means to be an artist. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Let's jump in. Uh Uh-huh, let's go. So we're going to start at the very beginning. What inspired you to become an author? Okay, well, what inspired me to become an author? It's a big question. Um, First thing to say is a very convoluted path to becoming an author. Originally, I wanted to be an astronaut when I was five years old (laughs) and a few other things, which I'll talk about later. But um, I think all kids are really interested in stories. I mean, right from a very early age, from the time you're virtually a baby. And um, we're also very interested in drawing. I mean, it's something that I automatically did when I was maybe from about three years old. And uh, I was, I don't know why, but I was quite good at it. Um, I didn't think much of it. I was also very good at telling stories and telling jokes at school. And and that was important for me as a way of making friends, Mm. especially because I was a very little kid. Like, I was the shortest kid in my class. And um, um, probably an easy target for bullies, except that I would make friends with them quite quickly Mm. by telling stories or drawing something. And so um, that that was, I guess you'd say, there was some natural talent there. But um, over the years, I developed that um, just because I continued being Mm. interested. And I realised there's all different kinds of stories and all different kinds of artwork Um, at different age levels and it just gets more and more complex and interesting and you can just keep going with it. So here I am. (laughs) That's excellent. And which one came first? Do you remember a love of words or a love of pictures or they both kind of found their own way at the same time? Definitely a love of pictures. And I think it's just because you can usually draw before you can write. Mm -hmm. And um, even now my heart is is really with visual things. Mm. and But then I, I think I really want to tell more about what's happening in this image that I have in my mind. Um, you know, how can I do that? And I've always loved words. Um, it started off with love of poetry. Mm. And I loved writing poems when I was a kid, like when I was about starting about the age of eight, I was writing heaps of poems. And, um, yeah, just words are magical, magical things because they mean things, but then they they also mean other things. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what interests me is how one word can mean so many thousands of different things. Mm-hmm. And we know a lot of the time you don't even have words in what you've got. We're going to explore that a bit later. And that can mean infinity things. It's even more Im- impossible to tell what every single bit is meaning. And that's so exciting without yes. having words yes. there to dictate, yep. which is great. Okay, so we've got another question. This one comes to us from Lumen Christie College. My name is Isabel. 
Where did you get your ideas from to write books? Well, big question. <laughs> the big ones up front. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, have you got an hour? <laughs> um, where do I get the ideas from? Um, well, interestingly, it's it's not in places that you necessarily expect. Um, I've been making books now as a full-time job for about 20 years, and I've learnt and continue to learn things over that time, and particularly where to get ideas from, because it's a problem everybody has if you're a creative person. It's like, oh, where am I going to get an idea from? Um, I have learnt to listen to um, a little kind of voice in my head that just sort of says, that's interesting, look at it again. So often it's things that you don't expect. Like I might see a, um, a tree which is in an unusual shape. I say, that tree looks a bit like a dinosaur. Now, normally you would go, well, yeah, but it's really a tree, and you mm-hmm. just walk away. Um, I listen to that voice and I go, okay, let's say it is a dinosaur. Uh, why is it there? How did it get there? What's going to happen next? That's basically, you know, the foundation for at least my kind of creative storytelling with a book like Cicada, for instance. Um, what if there was a bug working in an office and everyone <laughs> thought that was normal? That's basically <laughs> it. And, and I didn't know what it was about, but I just keep going. But it's such a trivial, silly, nonsense thought. And normally, I think, you know, so-called normal people would say, <laughs> okay, my brain's misfiring. I will think about something else serious and practical now. Um, instead, as an artist, you go, hang on a second, why did I think that? Yeah. Um, I want to find out why I thought that. Um, and it's the same with dreams. Why did I dream that? And instead of saying, hey, it's a silly dream, you go, no, there's some reason I thought of those things. And drawing and writing is a way of sort of trying to understand that. Mm, and following that path and seeing what comes out the more... Yeah, and you don't know. So mm. the other short answer is I don't have the idea for the book. Mm-hmm. I just start doing stuff and then the idea comes. Oh, that's, that's very good advice to hold on to. We've got some questions later about advice, so that's a good one. Just, just start. <laughs> and I have a question for you. Did you ever think at any point, apart from astronaut, we learned about that when you were really little... Did you ever, after that, think about becoming anything else other than an artist, illustrator, Oscar award-winning human? (laughs) First thing to say about awards is if you're trying to be an award-winning person, you're never going to become one. Um, You get awards when you don't care about them that much and you're just so busy doing your work um, and then they just pop up and you go, what? I won this thing? What's that about? Um, uh, I think, um, yeah, to answer the question, I had a lot of most... People in their lives, especially when they're young Mm. and trying to think of a career, um, are a bit confused. And I certainly was too. And that's normal, you know. I think it's pretty rare that you go, um, I'm going to be a doctor, like, from the age of five, and it just continues. My ideas changed all the time. But um, I, you know, when I was a teenager, I thought I was going to be a genetic engineer. That's what interested me, genetic engineering, because I read about it and I thought this is... This is going to be a big thing. Um, this was in the late 80s. I thought this is going to be big. Um, I should really study this. Um, I was interested in architecture, except my father is already an architect uh-huh. and he would always be complaining about the problems <laughs> of being an architect. And I go, oh, I don't want to do that job. <laughs> you often don't necessarily want to do the same job as your parents anyway. Um, I think um, I wanted to be a, a writer, a history writer as well. I wanted to be an art critic. I thought maybe that's something I could do because I like looking at paintings and talking about them. Um, something to do with movies, but I didn't know what. You know, I had no idea how you get into that. Um, and in the end, I, uh, I started just illustrating for science fiction magazines. It was like a hobby. 
um, and I managed to get a few pictures published. I thought, this is pretty good. And um, one thing led to another, and I found myself working in the field of books, and particularly books for children, which I never expected mm. to be working in. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been a very wandering path, you know, and I still wonder oh, what would it have been like if I'd been a scientist and mm. probably we'd be talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> probably still with awards because it sounds like you're pretty great at getting awards. <laughs> okay, well, our next question comes to us from St Philomena's School. Who or what was your biggest inspiration to start writing and why? Okay, inspirations mm. for writing. First of all, there's thousands. As with anybody, you read a good book, you think, wow, that was great. I would love to, my response is, I'd love to write something like that. You know, I want to do that too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I remember reading The Hobbit when I was about 11 years old and I was going, wow, I want to write something like that, mm -hmm. you know, or draw something like that. Um, actually, the, the biggest inspiration that got me writing seriously where I became interested in short stories mm -hmm. was um, The Twilight Zone, which was the 1960s, <laughs> you know, late 1950s, 1960s, black and white television show, which um, only in Perth at the time was on at like 2am in the morning <laughs> and I had to set a VCR to try and program VCR and try and catch this show. Um, and I, I just, there's something about it that just fascinated me. There's really weird stories, um, often that didn't make any sense, mm -hmm. but they were unlike any other stories that I'd come across. Um, they often had unhappy endings, which interested me, stories with unhappy endings, because, like, you know, well, that's really sort of disturbing and interesting and makes me think about it. And um, there were only so many Twilight Zone episodes I could get, and I really wanted to find more, and I thought, well, there must be people writing stories like this. And so I went to my local library and I asked the librarian, um, I'm interested in the Twilight Zone, what, what kind of stories are these? And she said, well, that's science fiction said, okay, well, um, who, who should I, where can I find more? And so she gave me a bookmark and it had different science fiction writers on there and I, you know, started like with A, Isaac Asimov and, and just down the list was Ray Bradbury and Ray Bradbury was a writer who wrote these really weird short stories kind of in the 1950s and um, I ended up reading almost all of them, you know. I mean, he, he wrote must be hundreds of stories and I, mm. I read all of them and that's been quite a big influence is the short stories of, of Ray Bradbury. Mm. And then I started writing my own. That's, that's what really got me seriously sitting down, early days of word processing, wow. writing my stories with my dot matrix printer, going <laughs> meh, 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 printing out the stories. As a teenager or was this sort of 11, 12 years old? Yeah, I'd say 11, <laughs> 11. Actually, I started on a typewriter. I didn't oh, have a wow. computer. So I was typing on a conventional noisy metal typewriter. I feel like some of you might have no idea what we're talking <laughs> kind about. Kind of like texting with a big machine. <laughs> yes, with a big machine. And it sounds like throughout all of these things with your career, you said, and what inspired you when you have these these thoughts and you want to follow them and even seeing the Twilight Zone, it sounds as though you've had this idea or sort of natural instinct to follow follow your nose throughout. You keep sort of keeping an open mind and yeah, maybe that's part of being an artist. It is. Being an artist is 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 paying attention to things that you like. I mean, that's mm -hmm. true of any career, mm -hmm. um, whether it's sport or, you know, science or engineering or medicine or legal stuff. It's like if, you've, if something interests you, mm -hmm. um, just try and find out why, mm -hmm. you know, and, and follow it up. And, and sometimes you exhaust that interest, you know. Mm -hmm. you'll, mm -hmm. you'll go so far, you go, now I'm not interested, that's fine. But um, A curiosity. Keeps yeah, that yeah. And, uh, yeah, and just, just sort of trying to think who you are what do you like? 
Mm. You are what you like, and so you just sort of follow the path. Um, it also gets you out of bed in the morning because <laughs> you're doing a job that you like. That you so, like. you know. That's great. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to ask some questions about themes. We know you've got lots of strong themes throughout all your books and summarising them is a hard thing to do, but I did try and make a somewhat comprehensive list of some of the themes that we see the most in your work. So we have colonisation, we have immigration, history, journeys of life, future and past, loneliness, imagination, friendship and time, and I am sure there are many that I have missed, but I am wondering if you would be able to choose maybe one of your most loved themes and tell us why you like to explore that. Um, <clears throat> first thing to say is that when the themes, that's a really good question about themes and why themes, the best answer I can give is I don't know, which is <laughs> not a satisfying answer, but what happens is... Um, when you write and draw, you, be, you become a slightly different person to who you are, you know, in your just normal day-to-day -day life, family or social interactions. Your mind thinks differently. Um, I like to think I'm, I'm a much more intelligent person when I'm writing and drawing. Like, you're getting the dumb version now talking. <laughs> but when I write and draw, I feel that my... Um, maybe because I've done it for so long, but it might... Things start to make more sense to me. The world mm -hmm. bits come together. I can mm -hmm. see the connection between things. And um, I'll just start by, you know, drawing, oh, I like that teapot. I'll start drawing that mm -hmm. teapot. And then I think, oh, I'll put some tentacles on it, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, I'll put it in the landscape. I'll put a person there. Maybe they're having a conversation. And before you know it, there's a theme. But I didn't think of that theme. Okay. Okay? I don't, I don't plan. I'm going to do a book about environmental destruction. Mm -hmm. It just happens, you know. Um, and I think... What you do is you just do the things that interest you and there's these background worries and concerns and, um, uh, you know, ideas that come to the surface. Like you find out what's important to you in your life and what you think is important in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll, I'll pick one of those themes, loneliness. Mm. Um, loneliness is one that seems to come up in my work a lot and... I don't know why, because I had a very happy childhood. It was very very sociable. Mm. Um, but uh, I think loneliness is its a big problem for a lot mm. of people. It has been for me. And part of the thing is when you're an artist, um, as opposed to, say, a performer, mm -hmm. I'm alone in a room most of the time. Mm. So the work I do, all the things you see in my books are done in complete silence, um, shut away, very small room. I have a, a table, which is the same table I've been using since I was five years old as our family dining room table and I work on that and you don't need much to be an artist, you know, some paper, pencils, mm. um, you need a computer for communicating with people and a phone but that's about it mm. and I kind of like that it's so low tech and it's so basic mm. and um, but it is a quite lonely, you start thinking about solitude and what it is to be away from things and um, uh, you know, with a book like The Red Tree, for instance, um, sometimes when you're in solitude for too long, um, you can get depression and stuff mm. like that. And so um, those are themes that just naturally come up as a result of the kind of work that I do. Mm. Inspired by your environment and who you, what yeah. you're going through. And, yeah, and, yeah, and what pictures look the best, you know. Yeah. So I'll do a picture of a girl walking down a street with a giant fish, dead fish floating over her, and I don't know why I drew that, but I really like it. And um, afterwards I'll say, well, maybe it's a picture about loneliness. But at the time all I know is uh, it feels like such a strong, powerful image to me. I want to paint it. And, uh, and following that. Yeah, so paint, 
Draw, write first, ask questions later. <laughs> Good <laughs> advice. Okay, so we have another question from St Philomena's, uh, Harry at St Philomena's School. Why do some of your books have sadness behind them like Cicada? That's a good question, and um, that's that's one I ask myself <laughs> a lot. Why are they so sad, you know? <laughs> why am I crying um, all the time? I really like sad movies and I like sad stories. I don't know why. Um, I think we, we look at art because we want to be moved, like you want to be made happy. Sometimes you want to be frightened. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a lot of people watch things... Um, that make them sad. Why would you want to be sad? Well, th- sadness is so therapeutic. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like I think the moments when, um, like in reality TV shows, the moment when people break down and start crying, it's like floods of realisation yeah. about themselves and the world come in. And so I think sadness is often it's misunderstood as a negative emotion. Um, it's, it's not. It's, it's like a, sometimes it's an, an emotion of it can be negative, it can be there can be an illness as well. So mm-hmm. there's all different types. You have to be careful about discriminating. But I think um, sadness can, is a kind of consciousness, the same way happiness, um, other emotions are less so. Like anger, for instance, I feel is slipping into unconsciousness mm-hmm. and there's not much wisdom mm-hmm. in anger. But sadness is one of the wise emotions, I feel. And um, the other thing too is the world is just... It's just saturated with sadness. I mean, there's so much tragedy everywhere. And the big question we all have as human beings is, is how do we cope with this, you know? Mm. Um, it's two responses. You, you cement over the whole thing and you pretend the world's happy um, and you lie about it or you look at it. And I think artists often like looking at it, mm-hmm. songwriters, poets, uh, musicians, dancers, everybody who does creative work. Um, if you're going to do creative work, you, you're going to be dealing a lot with the issue of sadness Mm. and it's also at the core of a good story Mm -hmm. Um, I have a five-year-old daughter and I tell her stories every night and I know if I start off um, there was a dragon who was very sad she's going to be way more interested in that than if if I say there's a happy dragon in a field of flowers it's like she's like come on where's the problem (laughs) give me some conflict yeah so sadness always you know it's a great also, just, you know, from a practical point of view, a great device for storytelling. Mm-hmm. Start off with a sad character and figure out why, why they're sad. And sometimes that confusion too between, you say it can sometimes be negatively connotated, sometimes when it's uncomfortable, we don't go there as much. So it, the uncomfortable, we think, oh, that's bad. But actually it's just we haven't hung out in that emotion for a while. And that's... Yeah, and, and the thing about writing and drawing is it's mm. a safe place mm. um, for looking at this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a safe place. I think that's why we read and why we write but mostly why we read books because we it's a safe personal space for processing emotions and um it's different from somebody talking at you when you read a book you're having a conversation with yourself Mm -hmm. and so um Hmm. and that's why we still go back to books even though we've got these great things like games and and apps and movies and and so much sort of highly produced things we always go back to books and the Mm -hmm. simplicity of somebody just telling a story Hmm. you know with words on a page because that's a unique little world that you can have where you're having a conversation with yourself without noise. Thank you. Okay, so our next question is from Macquarie Fields Public School. Why did you choose to write books based on social and historical subjects? Okay, why did I choose to write books based on social and historical subjects? Firstly, sometimes I don't choose that. It's just happens. And um, working as an illustrator... Um, 
part of the time I'm working on my own ideas. So mm -hmm. I come up with an idea for a story and, and how it could be illustrated. But also in my early career, um, a lot of my job was illustrating the work of other writers. And I learned, that's how I really learnt to illustrate is working with other writers who were more experienced. Um, people like uh, Gary Crew and John Marsden, but also um, literally dozens of others, you know, illustrating short stories and um, educational books and um, picture books and novels and everything. Um, it's quite a great job that way because you get all sorts of stuff. And then a lot of those projects, um, around the time that I, I started working was uh, social and historical subjects seemed to be quite popular mm -hmm. in the picture book form. It was quite a new thing in Australia, at least, to have picture books that were about uh, quite edgy subjects. Mm -hmm. And one of these was The Rabbits, um, which was written by John Marsden. And so that came across my desk. An editor said, you know, we had this very strange picture book text. Um, we're struggling to think of an illustrator who might, might be able to deal with this. And we thought of you. And to be honest, I didn't know what to do with it for a long time. And um, I almost declined it because uh, I just couldn't visualise... Um, if, for those of you who know the book, it's mm. a pretty complicated mm -hmm, book mm -hmm. and it's, it's also really weird and it also deals with a lot of, I would say, sensitive social and historical issues, mm -hmm. um, which could potentially offend people even. Mm. And so... Um, but then I found through illustration and particularly... Um, Surrealism, mm -hmm. which I hope we'll talk about a bit mm -hmm. more. Um, I found a way to illustrate those books in a way that actually they're still social and historical subjects, but I kind of tried to take the politics okay. out of it and 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 think about um, okay, pretend I don't know anything about the world, mm. and I'm learning about say the history of colonisation or the history of immigration for the first time. What would it? What would mm. I think about it? Um, and so with a lot of my books, what I'm trying to do is is look at the world as if I'm a, a child again, but with sort of adult skills and adult some adult understanding of things, but very much the child intelligence, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. to try and think about, okay, what can we learn just by looking, um, with, pretending we don't know anything. Mm -hmm. So um, the other thing too is social and historical subjects. There's so many, there's so much material there for yes. books. Like if you're ever stuck for an idea, just read about something that happened in history, um, it's not as boring as you think. <laughs> it's when you realise that those people were the same as you and they went mm. through this, how would you feel? Straight away it's like ideas for stories. It's relatable and, yeah. Okay, thank you. We have our next question from Abbotsley Junior School. Hi, my name is Sienna and my question for you is are the meanings and storylines of your books based on real life experiences? Thanks for your question, Sienna. Um, uh, are the meanings based on real-life experiences? Well, yes, um, and that's a good question because my books are quite strange and, and fantastical, so you could be mistaken for believing that they've got nothing to do with real life. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but the truth is that they're all based on real-life experiences. Um, I would say the job of an artist, or at least myself, is not so much creation but transformation. That's what artists do. They transform stuff. So you don't make something out of nothing. You take an idea of something that already exists and you kind of bend it and, and change the background, change the characters, change the storyline a little bit, but you keep the basic idea mm -hmm. and then you um, present it in a weird way and uh, it looks original and it is original, but at its core um, all original ideas come from existing ideas. Mm. 
So as an example, the loss thing is more or less um, about the first pet that we ever got, which was a stray cat, <laughs> which was actually roaming around our... Um, um, I have an older brother, and he first noticed this, this big ginger cat roaming around the primary school and it would come into classrooms and all the kids would be, they had a name for it which was Marmalade, they'd go, yay Marmalade's here, and it was very disruptive, very disruptive cat. And the principal, we had a very mean principal um, who gave, gave a PA announcement and said, if nobody takes this cat home, I'm going to kill it. Oh my God. <laughs> he actually said that. He was a really, really tough kind of guy. <laughs> and... Um, and uh, I don't think he was really going to yeah. do that, but he was kind of <laughs> kind of joking. But I, there was an element of, um, mm, I don't know, he could do it. Um, so my brother just picked up the cat at the end of school and he carried this, I don't know how he did it because we lived a kilometre away from school. <laughs> he carried this squirming cat yeah. all the way home and it was a stray cat, so I didn't understand the idea of a home. Mm. So we, we locked it in our back shed and my brother and I kept it there for a few days feeding it. <laughs> And then said, hey, mum, we got a cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's a scene in The Lost Thing where the boy is feeding the creature Christmas decorations in his back shed. Yeah. That's totally based on the memory. And you need those real memories to actually um, write a story, you know. Mm-mm-mm. You just to, to actually uh, feel that it's real. It's yeah. got to feel real. Even if it's sitting in a weird place, it has to feel real. So you base it on personal memories. And a truth at its centre. Yes. Okay, so we have another question now from Lansvale Public School. How long does it take me to finish writing a whole book? Um, anywhere from um, six months is probably the quickest. I'm pretty slow. I know other authors and illustrators can, can do a pretty good book in a month. It depends on your style. Mm-hmm. Um, my way of painting and drawing is very slow and I would say it's revisionist, which means I just do it again and again. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm, I'm often not happy with the first one and I do it again. I think of ways it could be better or worse. Uh, the longest I've spent on the, on a book is probably, um, well, two books would be about the same, The Arrival, mm. which uh, a book I redid a number of times and um, it was over a five-year period. And most recently, Tales from the Inner City, which I also wrote and painted over a five-year period. Wow. Um, that's too long. <laughs> too long. I think one year is, is, a, is a good amount of time. But when I was about 10 or 11, man, one week, that's it, you know. Um, try and do it in one week. Um, but the older you get, the more you, your attention span and your patience increases. And so you're able to do longer and longer projects. But, yeah, when I was a kid... Um, I would do a whole book in one day. Um, There's a challenge for you. Small book, but uh, that's, you know, that if you can... But I would say one or two weeks is a good amount of time for yeah. to do a book. Okay, we have a question, another question about the creative process. This one comes from Scotch Oakburn. Um, my question for you is, I find it hard to transfer my ideas and thoughts into words sometimes, or even into pictures. Do you have the same problem, and if you do, how do you cope with this? Oh, yeah. Um, that's the problem we, we all have. Um, there's often no shortage of, of ideas, and as an artist, um, you are basically an engineer trying to get those ideas into this reality mm. so you can show it to other people, and that's the trick. Um, so... Bad news, ongoing problem. It's never going to go away. Um, you're never going to find that magic way of just going, I've got an idea, I'm just going to paint it and there it is. 
Um, but one thing I've learned is to, over the years, is don't be too fixated on the original idea because it's okay. never going to come out perfectly. Isn't mm-hmm. You're never going to be able to actually get it out exactly the way you want. And I've learned um, that making art is not about expressing ideas, which sounds weird, but it's not. It's about um, developing ideas. So the act of drawing and writing mm-hmm. changes the way you look at things and you end up with something that you didn't expect. Mm-hmm. All of my books, when I look at them now, they look kind of weird to me because I really didn't plan them to look that way and I went in with, with um, a different idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what happens is in the process of trying to make it a reality, you're faced with limitations um, your own, the limitations of your own skills, mm-hmm. the limitations of getting a picture onto a page, you know, how long that takes. Like, you know, if it's going to take 10 years, you can't mm-hmm. do it. Um, all sorts of things. And that changes the way the story develops and actually improves it. Hopefully it gets better because you, you have all these problems. Um, so, yeah, my short answer is I cope with it by not being too worried about it, mm-hmm. you know, just trying to to um, let this thing evolve by itself. Hmm. Okay, so you've talked a lot about the creative process and we know that a particular part of the creative process is releasing that art into the world after you've had all this incubation period and you are in your desk that you've had since you were five, hmm. sitting in your own space and then you release it out to the world, which is a very scary part it can be because you worry about maybe what people think or will it be what I want it to be. Are there any times when, is there anything that has surprised you when you release that art out into the world, people's reactions to it? Can you think of maybe one example of something someone has shared with you that you thought, wow, I never even imagined that could be gained from what I put out there? Mm. Probably hard to choose just one. Oh, yeah, um, (laughs) um, that's a fascinating thing and it's a real privilege to actually get work published um, because then it it becomes a conversation. It's Mm -hmm. not just about, you know, you doing something, it's uh, having a conversation. Um, Sometimes that's welcome and sometimes it's not. Like, you know, people can have negative reactions to things and that, that can be difficult um, because you're quite fragile as an yeah, artist. Of you know, um, A sensitive person. To be an artist, you have to be a sensitive person. But um, most of the time I've been very fortunate. It's been really positive responses. And, and that's the first surprise to me always is like, wow, people really like this book because mm-hmm. often I think... Um, my fear is this book's too weird (laughs) and too personal. (laughs) No one's going to really get into it. And I'm endlessly surprised that people get into it and in the, they, they, they get the spirit of it pretty much the way I, not intended, but the the way I'm feeling. Mm. And that amazes me. And that's the power of art. I don't know how it does it, but these sort of pretty weird images can communicate very familiar feelings. Um, so I've learned to trust in that process and, um, uh, for a start, I don't worry too much about what people mm. are going to think and then I'm always surprised that they do think a lot of really interesting things. The Red Tree is probably the book that's evoked the most responses. Um, I think because it's got hardly any content in terms of it doesn't say what it's about and so people imagine different things. And um, I've actually had quite a few people tell me that um, it saved their lives, so that's the biggest compliment and that's really unanticipated because I didn't do the book wow. as, a, as a response to feelings of, you know, trying to help people who are mm. depressed, but that's how the book has been been used. And um, I guess some people were sort of feeling so depressed and they thought there's no point living, but then they saw that book. 
And the book actually doesn't say that there's any point living. or It doesn't try to cheer people up. It just says this is normal mm-hmm. to feel this way sometimes. And that was enough for people to, to feel like, oh, I feel so much better because, again, getting back to the issue of sadness, mm-hmm. someone's just talking about it, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that, that book constantly surprises me um, how it's used, how it's been used with um, uh, people dealing with grief, um, used by psychologists of um, dealing with people who have mental illnesses and, uh, yeah, totally unexpected. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge, that's a huge, huge compliment. It to is, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The art can affect life so much. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, so we've got some questions uh, about your images themselves, sorry. So we know some of your influences appear to be uh, Australian artists like John Black, Edward Hopper, Jeffrey Smart, um, and... I know you create images that have, they're very dreamlike and have elements of surrealism in them. Surrealism, we have only a certain amount of time and I'm sure we could talk about surrealism for hours, but for anyone who doesn't know what surrealism is, do you think maybe just in a really quick sentence you could try and define it and then tell us why you like surrealism? What is it about that? Yeah, basically it's images that are like dreams. That's that's <laughs> a short answer. Um, um, I like Surrealism, because um, everybody has dreams. Um, I think our dreams often have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. They're not as personal or weird, <laughs> or they're all weird in the same way. <laughs> um, and uh, they're also quite intensely felt mm-hmm. when you're having them. Mm-hmm. And I like that they're so creative. Like, I tell you what, compared to my books, my dreams are just leagues above <sighs> in terms of creativity. If only I could draw those, um, yeah, I wouldn't have to work so hard. Um, but I, I don't remember them. Uh, but the process of drawing and writing is a lot like dreaming. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's a flow of ideas. Um, you're allowing things to just come out of you without trying to control them too much. Mm-hmm. So surrealism is kind of the opposite of control and, and, and thinking too hard about mm-hmm. what you're drawing. It's just like, oh, I just draw whatever comes into my head. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's, that's it's a really good device for, uh, for being creative is to... And also worth studying surrealism as an art movement too to find out you know, why so many artists have embraced that. Well, we have another question about your images, and this one comes to us from Greenacre Public School. My name is Tippet, and I'm from Greenacre Public School. My question is, what does the Nautilus shell represent in your books? Uh-huh. What does the Nautilus shell represent in my books? Um, I love these very specific questions. Because <laughs> <so. laughs> it makes me think, you know, what does it represent? What does it represent? <laughs> um, OK, so basically it's that spiral shape. Um, uh, I think I was first introduced to it by my father um, because he showed me this thing called the golden section, which is like a, it's kind of a mathematical thing um, where, you know, numbers get larger in a certain way and if you if you draw them and then draw curves inside the, I don't know, it's complicated, but you end up with this spiral, okay? So it's like a mathematical okay. thing. Um, I wouldn't say there's any huge symbolic meaning to it okay. for me. I like the way it looks. Um, I've used it a lot, so it's like a stylistic thing. You know, sometimes you find a shape and you just like it, so you keep using it. Um, It's used a lot in a book called The Viewer, and there it does have a significance. And it's a reference to um, the idea of um, history. This is a bit complicated, but the idea of history as a spiral and that things tend to repeat Uh again and again, but a little bit differently. But it's always going around and around. And in a lot of ancient cultures, this was the idea of how time works. These days we're used to thinking about time as there's the past, the present and the future. Mm. 
but in a lot of other cultures historically, it's been a bit more complicated, and it's been this idea of this things kind of fold around and around. Um, and I've always been interested in that idea that maybe the way we think about time and history could be wrong and that there might be something else going on. Mm. I don't know what, but, um, yeah, the spiral is always interesting. Not quite a circle because it's changing it's and it's infinite. It goes on forever and ever mm. and ever. So, you know, it's just a really interesting shape. That's a great question. Thank you from Greenacre Public School. It definitely, as Sean said, makes him think about it too, which is great. Thank you. So we want to look at uh, quickly just a different creative side of things, the words. We touched on those at the beginning. We've got some questions about the words you do or don't write. And our first question about words comes to us from Macquarie Fields Public School. Why did you choose to write books with minimal or no words? Good question. Minimal or no words. I guess the first thing to say is that um, as an author and illustrator, those two things were quite separate for me for a long time. So when I was at school, I liked painting and I liked writing, but I didn't see them as necessarily connected. Uh And so I actually got used to writing stories that are completely just stories by themselves and and pictures that were just self-contained would be the word. That means everything you need to know is in the picture. Um, And pictures are by nature quite silent. They might have a title, um, but they don't need one. And... They can, te- they can have a whole story in one picture. You know, that saying, a picture's worth a thousand words. If you, if you design your picture well enough, you can actually imply a whole story. And I love those images. I'm very careful about mixing words and images. I think about it a lot. And one of my rules for doing a book is I never say in words what I'm saying in pictures. Uh-huh. And that makes it way more interesting. So you don't just write a cat walked across the room and then draw a picture of it. That's boring, you know. Um, you want to sort of do something really unusual like in the rabbits that have this scene that says they came by water and then there's this huge ship and there's all this other stuff going on but you you, they're not explaining each other they're just two separate things working together and I always do lots of experiments and I think okay does this need more words does it need less words and I always try to cut it down where possible and that's Mm -hmm. a good rule if you're writing um, you, you know, any writer will tell you this, is the editorial process, that is where you go through and you start removing things, mm-hmm. is actually just as important as the creative process of building it up. And um, I always do lots of experiments of taking away as much as I can until I'm almost left with a skeleton mm. and I, I see if that still works. And if it still works, I think, well, that's good. <laughs> and so a lot of my pictures are the same too. Even though they're quite complicated and they have lots of details, they're basically pretty simple. It gives the reader more room to imagine okay. stuff, okay? Yeah. So when you write a book, you're not telling people stuff or filling their heads with stuff. You're saying, here's an idea. I want you to come in and colour it in with your own thoughts and emotions. So you've got to leave space for mm-hmm. other people to interpret things. So that's the, that's the short answer. Why minimal? So other people have room to, to be creative themselves. And you all have huge imaginations and something like reading one of Sean's books, like he said, where you're not told what to think. It's excellent because you can go inside your own imagination and each and every one of you will have a different experience reading the same book, which is very exciting. Well, yeah, that's right. And just to add to that, Mm -hmm. um, everybody is an artist and everyone's an illustrator. Everyone's a writer. They just don't know it. And um, you just need to give them the tools Mm -hmm. to sort of unlock a story. And uh, it's, it's not... Every, you know, people who say, oh, I can't draw to save my life or I, I can't tell stories, I, I'm, I'm totally unimaginative. It's just not true. It's like the moment mm-hmm. you actually, um, if you like books, if you like movies, then you're imaginative, you're a writer, you're an artist because you're having to, 
you're having to build all of that in your own head, even if it's a movie and it's, you're still recreating it in your head to understand it, so you, you're doing a creative act by watching. Great. Well, we know about movies. We were just about to have a question about some movies. So we know that as part of your very long esteemed career, you've had The Red Tree, The Arrivals, they've been made into stage productions. And The Lost Thing, as we touched on at the beginning, has become a movie. Uh, we have a question from Central West Leadership Academy about The Lost Thing. Did you ever expect The Lost Thing to become a movie? Did I expect The Lost Thing to become a, a movie? No. Um, that, that would be an unrealistic expectation. <laughs> but when I, was, when I was working on the book, I did often think this would be such a great film, you know, because mm. um, you can see in the book, if you look at it closely, it looks very, the word I would use is theatrical. It looks like you're looking at a little stage with all these kind of puppets moving around on the stage and the pictures are all more or less the same colours. They have the same lighting, like with these strong shadows, and um, it has a kind of framing around the pictures. So it's like you're looking through a little window all the time, almost like a TV screen, mm. and seeing all these funny things happening. And, um, I, you know, I thought, well, if this would... I'd love to see the creature move as well. That's one thing, unfortunately, is difficult to do when you're an illustrator because your medium is is very quiet and it's motionless. Um, and you can imply sound and movement quite a lot with pictures. You can do things to say, give the impression that things are moving. But, um, yeah, to actually add sound and, and movement is, is not possible until you move into animation. So, yeah, um, the short answer is when the opportunity came up to turn it into a film, I, I realised that... Um, and that the idea came from a film company. It didn't come from me. They said we're interested in turning this into a film. And I said, well, I think that would work, um, so let's explore it. And um, film is very difficult to get made. And, and the mm -hmm. fact that we made it was a big achievement. We actually finished the thing and it looked okay. It's not perfect, but it looked okay. <laughs> and um, I think the best part for me was the sound. I'd never added sound to my pictures before mm -hmm. and it, it totally made them alive. Uh, even when we were playing with drawings, mm -hmm. Um, just moving drawings on a screen. In the moment you put sound effects on, it's sort of very magical. So, um, yeah, it was very exciting for me to work with other sound artists and composers and um, to come up with the, the soundscape for that world. You have had such a long, remarkable career. Do you happen to have a single standout moment that has eclipsed anything else in your career? And that is perhaps the toughest question of the day. But let's see. Boring short answer, not really. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of really, a lot of highlights, a lot of lowlights, a lot of highlights, but very incremental. Um, and I think that's been nice, you know, mm. that there's not been, I mean, a lot of people think about the Oscar and so on. Um, and those, mm. and I also won a, a major Swedish award, and that was pretty significant um, uh, because it was one that's extremely rare to be nominated let alone received and but those are kind of external things so that's a different that's a different world is like how are, how is work received for mm -hmm. me the, the the highlights have always been the personal achievements that happen in a quiet room when no one's around um and I remember maybe one if I had to pick a a time of like a you know feeling I've really done something it would be the completion of the rabbits um that was the first time that I I did a project that was very sort of substantial and very much my own ideas. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I had very little uh, 
contact with the editor or, or the author. Um, I, was, I was very much just left, you know, free to do whatever I wanted. And I thought I'd, I was really going to make the weirdest book I could make <laughs> and, and just push it as far as I could. And the result was a real surprise to me. Like, it's such a, even now I look at it as such a weird, weird book, but it's a strange, hypnotic kind of world. And when I finished the set of illustrations for that, I just remember feeling, um, I, I'm really happy with this. Mm. I've done something. Mm. I think it's really unusual and unique for me. I don't know what other people think, but mm. I just felt for me personally, um, I'm, I'm proud of, of this book, mm. what, you know, and, and how much I researched it as well because there's a lot of thought behind each image. And, um, yeah, and I was proud of how weird it looked. <laughs> like I didn't, I felt like it doesn't look like anything to do with me. It's like something else from another planet. Great, you know. That's so, exciting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was around... Um, 2000 and at that point I was really an unknown uh, mm. people didn't really know my work um, and uh, and so it was kind of uh, nice to actually have that feeling of well I've done something I mm. like you know and that was back in 2000 and in 2019 Sean has been recognized as an Aussie legend having his photo on a postage stamp so wherever you are in the country you might find a little Sean tan in the corner of an envelope my most important question of the day, how does it feel having people lick your face? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that was the first comment I had from a friend. He said, I don't, I don't know how I feel about licking the back of your head. I have to post it. So I said, don't worry, there's increasingly less and less there to lick. But um, it's also self-adhesive. So, uh, so. okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. keep your eyes out for Sean. <laughs> um, yeah, that was, a really, that was a really pleasant and unexpected thing. Um, there were five other, uh, well, there was five of us um, authors that were chosen to be featured. You know, it's nice to have the theme of children's literature as, mm -hmm. a, as a theme for this year's, you know, Legends yeah. Australia Post stamps. And, um, yeah, I was, I was very surprised and um, mm. a bit self-conscious about it, I have to say. <laughs> I, was, I was like, oh, I don't know, see my, my mug on a on a stamp. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a really lovely honour and uh, it's just nice to um, just have that, that kind of recognition and I hope some people see this stamp and go, Who, who's this goofy-looking guy and, <laughs> and what's this weird book? Or, you know, I'm, oh, I think I'll check it out. So it's, it's kind of nice. Yeah, and you can all keep your eyes out and you'll know, you'll know the answer, who that goofy-looking guy is. <laughs> so we have a question about your career. We've got two more questions about your career and then we're almost at the end. So we're almost there, turbo round. Uh, this question is also from Greenacre Public School. Hi, my name is Marty and I'm from Granaka Public School. And my question is, have you had any career setbacks? Yes, I think if you have any career, you're going to have a number of setbacks. Um, for an artist, often the biggest setback doesn't come from outside, it comes from inside and um, it takes the form of massive self-doubt. Uh, and any artist or creative person you talk to and probably anyone in any profession really, um, sometimes has this feeling that... Uh, Everything I'm doing is, is somewhat pointless and I'm a bit of a fraud. And, <laughs> um, and so on and, and so, so on. And so on and so on. And it's kind of like a, it, can be, it can lead to a spiral of depression. So it can be quite a dangerous thing. Um, and you have to learn ways of coping with that. Um, I'm still, I still struggle with it. But basically um, I've learned to understand that it's a temporary feeling, mm. you know, mm -hmm. um, and just telling myself it's a temporary feeling, it'll go away. Um, and I do something else. Like when I have people often ask this question about artist block and writer's mm -hmm. block, um, just do something else. Go and do some gardening or something. Mm -hmm. um, Break it up. That's, that's my answer. So, uh, yeah, but the biggest career setback I think you will find, if, if any of you pursue a creative career, is self-doubt, 
Mm. Um, sometimes criticism for others, you know, um, that can then lead to self-doubt. Uh, but that, that's a, And all my artist friends, it's the same thing, mm. self-doubt, big problem. Well, we have a question actually about criticism. It comes from Lansvale Public School. How do you deal with criticism? Very badly. I, I smash chairs, I scream, <laughs> I, I weep into the carpet. Um, no, I... Um, uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's upsetting, okay? Yeah. It? But when you put your work out there, it's going to have... It's kind of unfortunate sometimes that in order to be an artist and make a living that you have to actually publish work. Because sometimes... And there is work that I do that I don't show, you know, um, that I keep it in my sketchbook or... I just paint a picture and just put it on my wall. I don't show anybody. So one answer to that question is there's a body of work that I don't actually leave open to criticism mm. because I don't think criticism is such a good thing. Mm. It can be positive. Mm-hmm. Like people can say, you know, hey, you need to look more at, at how you use colour or, you know, practice your drawing skills more and this sort of stuff. That's useful. Mm. But um, I think all of those things you, could, you you'll find for yourself. So the best solution I've had for dealing with criticism is to become worse than all the other critics. So I'm the biggest critic of my own work and I trust my own criticism before other people's. And that's actually probably what's helped me the most being a confident artist is um, a certain level of self-belief and and applying critical judgment to my own work. Mm-hmm. So when I've done something, um, I don't criticise it straight away, but I'll leave it there. I'll come back and then I'll say, okay, now let's pretend that I'm a critic and what would I say to myself about this and how could I improve it? And um, the more you do that, the more you actually feel more secure and you don't mind so much what other yes. people say. And when they do criticise work, often I already agree with them. They'll say, you know, this story is very weak. Um, when you're working collaboratively, like in a film, mm-hmm. you're going to have to deal with this stuff. So they'll say this, this scene is a very weak scene. Uh, you know, it's, it's not working. Mm-hmm. And most in most cases, I say, I totally agree. I'm glad you said that. Mm, so you're um, aware of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the weaker points. Okay, so we have only a few questions left. We'll have quick, quick last few. Uh, they're about the future. So we have a, a question about the future from Central West Leadership Academy. What are some of the most surprising things you've learned while writing your books? Some of the most surprising things I've learned while writing my books, well, first of all, is the, the constant surprise that I have is um, I didn't know I thought that. Or I didn't know I felt that. Um, And you'll find that when you write and whether it's writing in a diary Mm -hmm. or writing a fictional story or writing about, you know, even sometimes a really boring essay about something, um, you realise, oh, I didn't realise I I thought that or believed that. And um, sometimes it's I didn't realise I was that smart, you know. That's a good Um, one. It is good when that happens. And uh, it also happens with drawing. It's like I didn't realise... I, you know, I had so much feeling about a, a certain subject, you know. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's, that's what keeps actually writing and painting interesting is that knowing there's going to be surprise. some surprise. Because if, if you knew exactly how it was going to turn out and, and what you, if you knew exactly what you were doing, it would be really boring and hard mm. work and it's very slow and tedious sometimes. Um, but there's these little moments where you go wow, um, I actually thought of something pretty smart, you know, and, and uh, yeah, so that's nice. Great. We've got a question from Lansvale Public School. What is your advice to students that are not motivated to write? That's a good one um, because I am often not motivated to write. Um, I'm 
It's the same with drawing. I'm not actually a compulsive drawer. I know people who are. It's like, I've got to draw. I've got to write. I'm not like that. I'm like, I'd rather watch TV, actually. <laughs> I think I'll go and have watch a cup of coffee. Watch reality TV and someone cries when you're getting gay. Yeah, yeah. I'll go watch some reality TV. Um, for me, um, there is a certain discipline that is required, um, you know, when to be a writer or an artist is you... Um, I remember reading once the art of being a writer is the art of applying the seat of one's pants to the seat of the chair. So in other words, you just sit down and do it. Just and do I've it. heard that Get advice again and again. Yeah. Um, and uh, you just start, you know. And then, of course, sometimes you end up banging your head against a wall. And so you don't get anywhere. Um, and you think that advice is terrible. But um, that's okay. You just go out and do something else. And like I said, if, it's, if you're really stuck, do something else. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't force it too much. Now, if you're at school and you have to write something, you really don't want to do it, um, the, best, the best thing to do is, is to try and read something that you like, that you've read before, to remind yourself of what is good about writing. Um, and the other thing is you just start. You just start with anything and just know that you don't have to get it right. Mm. I think that's what stops a lot of people mm-hmm. thinking it's got to be good. Most of my work is actually really terrible, but you guys don't see that. Um, it's all the stuff that I start. It's just absolutely, absolute drivel. Um, and I keep it in my sketchbook and uh, I, I spare humanity from the horrors of this work. Um, but if you keep doing enough bad things, you actually get a really good thing. So just don't be afraid of failure. Mm. Great. Okay, we have a lucky last question we're going to squeeze into the end. This might be my favourite question. It comes from Lindisfarne Anglican School. Students in Year 4 at Lindisfarne would like to ask if they were real, would you be friends with Cicada or the Lost Thing? Oh, wow, this is such an interesting question. Would I be friends with characters um, in my own books? I like to think that I would be, you know, but in truth, um, I'm not sure. Uh, and this it's an interesting question because... One of the reasons that I, I write and draw is to confront fears, mm. okay, so, um, and to confront my own limitations. And some of it is self-criticism, mm. the fact that um, I'm worried about often, like in a story like The Lost Thing, I'm really worried that I'm ignoring important things all the time in my life and trying, I think everybody does this, like trying to shield out stuff that's a bit weird or problematic. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just going, oh, that's, that person's too difficult. I don't want to deal with them. That issue, uh, it's, it's, it's very un- makes me very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about it. And I think um, I'm as guilty as everybody else about failures of compassion and, mm-hmm. and understanding and, and putting in an effort because I'm a pretty typical guy, I like to think. I'm not exceptionally compassionate or caring or anything. And I've got limits. And a lot of those stories are about what concerns about my own limits, especially the last thing, the way it ends, where there's this, um, it's basically me in the story. That's the only book where I've actually depicted myself um, uh, in, in a sort of semi-autobiographical way. He's on a tram at the end and he's looking out the window and there's this creature that needs help, yeah. but he needs to get to work. And he's like, mm, uh, I think I just stay on the tram. Go to work. Yeah, so that's a self-criticism because I think I might do that and... Um, I wish that I didn't. I wish that I would, uh, you know, stop and go, wait, this this funny creature needs help. I'm going to find out more, be more curious. And, you know, with the cicada in the office, I think I would just walk past and <laughs> make a wide berth and go, oh, God, you know, what's, what's that thing? 
Um, so part of the process <laughs> of... Uh, making, talk, talk, yeah, talk, what? Who? Yeah, it's creeping me out. Um, so part of the, <laughs> the reason I do tell these stories is I'm interested in exploring my versions mm. to things and uh, my level of ignorance too mm. as another one. A lot of my stories are about people who can't understand stuff who can't communicate properly mm-hmm. um, and who are some, in some way disabled. I think it's interesting to look at all my books as about disability mm. and I think um, it's because they are issues that I think I'm, I'm still dealing with all the time. Wow. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of our talk. I feel like we could talk for hours and hours and hours. And we've definitely learned a great deal about Sean's beautiful art and his incredible career as an artist. We also learned, very importantly, how we can all be artists in our own way too. Goodbye. Okay. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. To make sure you don't miss out, subscribe to Artie Farty wherever you get your podcasts from.